Up Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up. Today, I'm speaking with a really interesting author, Katie North, who wrote this book called The Resiliency Effect, which really dives deep into using adversity in your life to actually propel you forward to success and really understanding how our own mindsets and coping mechanisms and I don't know, survival instincts from traumatizing times in our life can hold us back if they go unmanaged over the course of your life. You can get so busy just trying to operate from a place of survival. Uh, It can lead you quickly burning out, uh, falling into toxic perfectionism, and struggling with just overachievement for the sake of achievement in and of itself. That's certainly what happened to Katie North, who I'm going to speak with today, all about cultivating resilience, making big changes, and embracing curiosity in your career. So if that sounds uh, like something you need to hear, stick around. I do want to give a little trigger warning here. We do talk about childhood trauma uh, and alcoholism in today's episode. So if that doesn't feel like a safe space or safe topic for you, um, just FYI. (laughs) And if you need to opt out of today's episode, I'll still be here uh, at our next one for you and I won't take it personally. That being said, Katie shared some really important takeaways in today's conversation that I think you are going to really benefit from hearing. So without further ado, Katie North is an anti-to-do list CEO. We're going to talk more about that. She's also the founder of and uh, personal finance guru at North Financial Advisors. As I mentioned, she's the author of The Resiliency Effect, How to Own Your Adversity to Act on Your Biggest Dreams. And she's joining me here on the Boss Podcast. Katie, welcome to today's episode. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted. So I found your book, The Resiliency Effect, really fascinating, and I've got so many questions for you about the connection between, uh, you know, overcoming some pretty hard stuff (laughs) and how it sets us up, especially as women, to, I don't know, sometimes overcorrect later on in life, uh, and the role resiliency plays in navigating all of that. But first... How did you get into this work? How did you end up authoring a book like The Resiliency Effect? Yeah. So, I mean, it comes with my private client work, right? As a financial advisor, I talk to people every day about the big goals and the dreams and the things that they're working on. Mm. And I just noticed a trend, right? That, you know, all of us have these big things that we want to do, but very few of us are actually living them. Yeah. And so I wanted to figure out why that was. And I can relate because I did it too. (laughs) You know, it took me a full eight years from the time I wrote down on a journal one day that I wanted to do personal finance one-on-one to actually make that dream a reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's real. I think uh, we spend a lot of time here at Bossed Up talking about goal attainment and getting after our goals and hacking our own psychology and it sounds to me like a lot of your work stemmed on unlearning and really retaking ownership of your own mindset. So what got you started uh, when it comes to being curious around your mindset and your own limiting beliefs and how to actually begin living life and pursuing your career on your own terms? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, there's a lot there for sure. I think one of the things I learned from writing this book is that To me, resilience isn't just about getting through tough times and tough things, right? It's about what's your, what you're like, 
mm-hmm. when you get through it. And so, you know, to me, resilience has always been this double-edged sword. It's fantastic that because of, you know, traumas and experience I had as a child and young adult made me extremely like strong and resilient and, you know, even powerful in a lot of ways um, in my ability to, you know, navigate situations and um, take the temperature of the room, for instance. Um, But yet I always struggled with the double-edged sword of this, which is sometimes I would take two things, things a little too far. I would work too hard. I would um, focus only on what other people wanted, not necessarily what I wanted. And and so I found as I kind of went through life and had many times where I would get knocked down by a bout of depression or a bout of anxiety, that it took more than just um, check boxes and career, you know, successes to, um, to actually make me feel kind of a lasting happiness. And so I set on sort of a more, an, more of an inner journey, right. To, to examine things that still had an impact on me today that I wasn't really fully aware of, um, at all, at all times. And I, I think I'm still discovering that and I maybe will continue to discover that throughout, throughout my life. And you differentiate in your book between what you call trauma and capital T trauma. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about what you faced growing up and how that impacted you? And for those listeners who might relate sort of how you differentiate between, um, you know, background anxiety or, or stressors that are omnipresent, like racism, sexism, poverty, and also the more capital T traumas that exist out there. Yeah. I mean, so I definitely had what I call capital T traumas. You know, my parents were both alcoholics. Um, They both died of alcoholism-related diseases within a couple years of each other, and I was in my early 20s. But, I mean, those are are capital T things that happened to you. I mean, I became the the guardian to my 16-year-old sister at the age of 21, that's, that's a, that's a big thing. Right. Um, but there's so many other little T traumas that I experienced, um, you know, taking on too much responsibility, needing to be hypervigilant, um, and almost creating this like bubble of perfection around me so that I didn't draw too much attention to myself. Um, and I think it's a lot of those things that are, are, you don't necessarily have to go through capital T trauma, but those lowercase T trauma things can, can be insidious and can find their way into many people's, if not all people's lives um, due to some of the things you mentioned. I mean, some of it is systemic as it relates to, you know, various groups of people. Um, and some of it is just a, you know, a function of going through life and, you know, being a teenager and dealing, dealing with that. Right. You know? Right. Um, yeah. So that's how I make the distinction is because sometimes we feel, I think we feel as women like, Oh, I can't, I can't, I I didn't have that, have it that bad. So I can't blame it on this or, um, you know, I, you know, I really can't say that, that all of this, you know, impacted me to that degree because what I experienced was just a few things here and there. Um, and so for me, what it actually was, was those, those little T traumas that actually made a bigger impact on me and my personality Mm. and the things that contributed to burnout, overwork and perfectionism. Yeah. And what you call toxic perfectionism, which I think is really interesting. You know, one of the things I picked up on in your writing was how in in any situation like 
you know, growing up in a, in a household like yours, one of your coping mechanisms and or survival tactics, like self-protection tactics, might be to get really good at being empathic, right? And listening yeah. for everyone else's emotions and being a peacekeeper. And I think a lot of uh, women and girls and really anyone who's in an environment where maybe there's volatility around you gets really good at pleasing, perfecting, performing. Um, and that's if you're like able to break the cycle of whatever is, is that you're inheriting like you did. So what's the dark side of all of those coping mechanisms and like, (laughs) how does that manifest later on in life sometimes? Well, it is really, it does become really hard to recognize because a lot of those coping mechanisms gain you all sorts of recognition in school, in academics, um, even with family members. I mean, for me growing up, you know, all of my family had, yeah, you know, extended family would sing my praises and how proud they were of me and how strong I was and mm. all of those sorts of things. But it really didn't matter how much I heard that. Um, it didn't, it didn't solve like the deeper wounds that I was experiencing. Right. So, you know, I think as I went through life, I kind of had this, you know, view of my, myself as yeah, I am really good at school. I don't have to try that hard. Yeah, I am really good at X, Y, Z, you know, I, but I, it's sort of this internalized, um, need to, to continue to perform and continue to find the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. So it doesn't, it gets to a point, the dark side is that there's, you know, you might run out of checklists, (laughs) you might run out of things. Um, and, and then what do you do? What do you, did you pick up and move across the world? Do you, you know, change your life again. Um, it's it, it's sort of like you're never happy. You never quite reach yeah. that threshold. It's almost um, it's interesting. It's like it, it reminds me of like the dopamine hit we all get from that little feeling of achievement when you tick off something from your to do list. You know, mm-hmm. um, we can get so like our self worth can become very attached to that dopamine hit for sure and ourself our sense of worthiness can be so attached to achievement it really values achievers um that it can become very hollow right yeah. you can get through law school and be like shit I don't want to be a lawyer oh yeah <laughs> which is like a third of the people listening to this podcast so <laughs> you know it's interesting you you your journey manifested in the form of a lot of early achievement in your life and in your career um, at what point did you start to do the hard work of pivoting, of asking yourself what you really want? And how did that come about for you? I think it happened slowly. There wasn't like a significant turning point that said, oh, I'm going to figure out what I want now. I think it happened very slowly. And I would have periods mm-hmm. where I would feel comfortable, you know, writing and sharing with my, even with myself or with, with friends, um, you know, what it is that I wanted. And then I would kind of take steps back and like, "Eh, I really can't do that right now. That's not realistic. Yeah. yeah. Um, You know, and that's what happened with me before I started my financial planning business is, you know, I wrote that down eight years prior to actually starting my business that I wanted to be a financial advisor working one-on-one. And I just sort of wrote it down and then shoved that journal in a drawer somewhere and said, yeah, that's not, I can't do that right now. It doesn't make any sense. You know, Mm -hmm. I can't go from I can't go from A to C. There's all these other steps I have to take. Um, mm-hmm. And then, and how, you know. How I, true is that? Like, how true is that belief? You know what I mean? Because I think yeah. so many people have, especially 
people who have unmet needs, unmet dreams, unmet desires will say, yeah, but, you know, here's a very real obstacle in my path, so I can't. And I think it's important to question that can't. You know what I mean? Like, how did that, how real was it in your in your life, do you feel like? Yeah, I mean, I, I had no idea at that point what it would mean to me to have this. I just kind of wrote it down as a goal, right? And mm-hmm. there's something we all have is, it's I you know, we call it a status quo bias in the book, which is, you know, it's really comfortable to stay with the path that we're on. It's very, very uncomfortable to try to take even small, simple daily steps to be move, move in a different direction, right? And so um, it almost takes a burst of energy or excitement or a vision um, to be able to tap into the feelings of like, what would this actually mean for me? What would it be like? And I found that once I was able to tap into that sort of energy, that it was much easier to start making the steps, um, to take the right steps. I mean, it didn't hurt also that I had gotten burned out in my corporate job and I basically had it, had it up to here um, and, you know, made uh, made a difficult move to the day after I gave my final presentation for my MBA degree to, to mm-hmm. quit my job. Yeah. And it's not, I felt like also sometimes you know, the goal you have all along is not necessarily a surprise. It's not super unrelated to what you were doing before, right? But where do you think the motivation around personal finance came from? Like, why money? Why helping other people one-on-one with money? Well, you know, part of my own journey is my, you know, my parents were small business owners and maybe some of the the cool aspect of, you know, what I got from them is that for an early age, I was exposed to spreadsheets and money. And I was from the age of 13 helping my parents, um, you know, like do the books, do, you know, mm-hmm. do the, the, our hotel business books and, um, learned how to write business checks and like pay bills and stuff like that. And so I, I had a comfort with money and I also saw money as a tool for safety and security in my own life because I put myself through college. I paid for all of it. Um, you know, I was always working jobs in my undergrad and, you know, Mm -hmm. all of that kind of stuff. And so I felt that I had a lot of skills that I saw a lot of people struggling with. And in particular, while I was going through my MBA cohort. Um, you know, it's, we're sitting here learning finance and, um, financial topics, but it's not personal finance. And so there's sort of a secret shame associated with that, that you can make it so far in your career or in your education and still not have the skills and the tools that you need to be successful financially from a personal perspective. And I felt like I could fill in the gap for people there. And I could relate to people's, you know, struggle and journey with money as well. Totally. I mean, it is such a a real barrier for making change in your life. You know what I mean? Like quite literally, if you know how to make, if you know how to make some financial change, if you feel autonomy, you feel agency there, uh, it, it feels freeing every, you know, in every other aspect of your life. You profile a bunch of women in your book who've made significant changes in their career, and you talk a bit about their success catalysts, like things in their path that have accelerated their ability to make changes. And one of them is is basically this idea of just unlearning your mm-hmm. ingrained beliefs, your limiting beliefs that you may have picked up along the way. What does that look like to someone who's listening thinking, yeah, I want to make change, but I have no idea where to start? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think for one, it lets us off the hook a little bit because I think sometimes we approach everything as this massive research project that we have to do (laughs) and like, you know, learn new things and figure it all out. And, you know, it's kind of relieving to give yourself permission to just say, well, actually what I need to do is forget about a lot of the stuff that I've learned and a lot of the coping mechanisms that I've developed over the years. And Sometimes that permission piece is what we really need to start getting moving in the right direction. You know, perfectionism is a real big one and overachievement is a real big one. It's like I had to get used to, you know, while I was getting my MBA, like B's and C's get degrees. <laughs> like I don't need to get an <laughs> A on every one of these classes. You yeah. know, I don't I don't need to bust my butt to try to make this happen because nobody cares. Literally nobody cares. Mm-hmm. Um And so I, you know, after I quit my job, you know, taking a sabbatical was a really important catalyst for me because it was a, it was sort of like a playground for me to Mm -hmm. experiment with not achieving anything. Like I would get up in the morning, I would make my coffee and I just, the day was open. You know, Mm -hmm. I would initially, I would find myself getting anxious. Like I would notice a scratch on my floor, for instance, and think, oh my gosh, I have to do something about this scratch on my floor. What is wrong with my house? And, and then I would slowly, you know, have new thoughts come in like, you know, I don't need to worry about that right now. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe it's better for me to connect with someone today and go have a coffee. Maybe it's better for me to start learning a little bit about what some of the local financial advisors um, do to get clients or how, you know, what their um, business strategy has been from year one to year five. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and thinking about ways in which I can let go of some of that perfectionism and the need to have like a checklist every day. And that's what, that's what finally kicked my habit of like to-do lists. And a lot of people um, react with horror when I tell them that I don't use to-do lists because they wonder how I get anything done. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a terrible system for me. It, it Mm -hmm. feeds that beast of the overachievement. Um, And so I just use you know, time boxing in my calendar instead. And it's a subtle change, but it creates time to, to complete tasks as opposed to needing to fill up my day with more and more things to do. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You, the sound of taking a sabbatical is so luxurious, right? Especially to Americans who are like completely blown away by the concept. (laughs) And I can hear people like, thinking, oh, that must be nice. But when you were taking a sabbatical, you were doing significant work on your own mental health, right? This yeah. wasn't like a vacation, although there's nothing wrong with taking a vacation either. And we Americans should be more open to that. So in your book, you share some practical tips around how to take a sabbatical. Why is that a catalyst? Like, why should people consider that? And from a practical standpoint, how on earth can people make that happen? Uh, given the fact that the majority of us are living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. Um, so it does take a little bit of foresight to try, you know, to build up some savings to live off of. Um, but the one silver lining is that you don't need to be, you don't need to save up as much as your salary, right? You only need to save up as much as what your base expenses are. Mm -hmm. And so that alleviates a bit of the financial burden when you think about it like that. Um, you know, it's the same thing you might do when you're trying to go on an extended maternity leave. You know, if you know that you have nine months to save, 
you just have to save a slight portion of your pay, you know, over that nine months and you'll end up having several months worth of your expenses covered. So you can think about like that, like, mm-hmm. you know, when you're trying to save up, but, um, the value of a sabbatical is endless. Um, you know, some I, I profile some people in my book who have created sabbaticals and they make it a systemic thing that they do either once per year or once every two years. And some people use it as an opportunity to do volunteer work or explore a hobby or even a, you know, an unrelated field that they enjoy working in just to get other experiences and, you know, uniqueness in their life. Um, and other people like me, you know, took it as a time to like do deep work and self-reflection and to sort of get my mind right and unlearn a lot of these behaviors that I had, Uh you know, been ingrained in. And so, um, you know, I really, my hope, and I, you know, I'm starting to see this to some degree, um, with corporations offering it as a benefit. If you've Uh been with a company for five years or eight or 10 years, you know, you're offered a period of time off to do with it as you please, uh, similar to how academics are, are offered that. Um, so my hope is that, you know, this will catch on as an idea. Um, but for now it's, it's another one of those things of like giving people permission to dream a little bit and say, no, actually I could take a sabbatical. That's a real possibility here. And either my job will be waiting for me when I come back because I'm able to negotiate that, or I'm going to find a new job when I come back. Right. Right. And just as a reminder for those listening who are struggling with actual health issues and or mental health, uh, you know, concerns, you do have protections as a worker to essentially that kind of time off for for medical leave. Um, We did an episode called Mental Health and Wealth that I'll link to in the show notes today that, you know, speaks to your benefits and knowing your rights and basically getting what you deserve because... It's not easy to make this happen on your own. <laughs> like, yeah. I think you write in your book, like, cash is what helps. Yeah. And yeah, at the same time, like, for those who are, I think you talk about being multi-passionate in the book as well, right? For those who have, you know, multiple things that spark our interest over the course of one's career, which I would argue is basically all of us, uh, you know, finding, making time for meaningful work, if not lucrative uh, you know, success and ambition and achievement driven work is so, so important. So what is your take on being multi-passionate or having lots of different, uh, skills across disciplines? Well, I think that's one of the things that makes us all unique, right? It brings our own unique perspective to whatever task we're doing and whatever tasks we're getting paid for is we bring all of these additional experiences and, you know, from the time we're born, you know, we get asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And then when you're in school, what's your major? And then once, you know, what are you, what are you going to do for work? And um, you're, we're taught to specialize. We're taught that specializing is a good thing. Um, but actually, that's not true. Our unique experiences are what make us a good thing. And, you know, learning art or spending time on art can absolutely have a positive impact on the way we approach our legal profession or our financial profession, because there's certainly things that we learn or see. Um, I use learning Spanish as an example, right? It's Mm -hmm. like I, you know, I spent a lot of time um, doing some one-on-one 
tutoring, learning Spanish. And I started to learn all these new word associations because the etymology of Spanish words you know, would, would ping me in English and think, oh, I wonder where that comes from. And, you know, it just impacted the way, you know, my experience with the English language and my ability to communicate. And so all sorts of things like that can happen when we either um, approach, you know, multifaceted hobbies because, you know, mm. we follow passions or things that we enjoy, or simply because we enjoy learning lots of things. You know, maybe you have an interest in science, but your job doesn't let you do any scientific things. Um, you know, that can have a tremendous impact on how you see the world. And I think that's something you should glom onto is your own uniqueness and power in, you know, who you are as a person and what you offer to the world. That is such an important point. I feel like it can become very easy to fall into habits. And like you said, we're so biased as human beings towards the status quo, but you know, changing up our routine, remembering that inspiration comes from everywhere and that we can have multiple interests that we're pursuing or even just dabbling in and yeah. not trying to pursue, just trying to dabble, you know, is so, so key for me. It's really been adding music back into my life. And I, I, I still feel guilty for not practicing more, but like <laughs> I'm not playing the drums to be great at playing the drums and playing the drums just to dabble, you know? So kind of freeing yourself to not go pro with every hobby we have is so, so rare in this, in this side hustle obsessed culture of ours. So talk to me about making big changes in one's career. You've done it. A lot of the women you profile in the book have done it. Um, you know, let's say you're doing the deep work, you're questioning how your mindset may have been holding you back. You're, you know, you're sort of getting out of the status quo bias and you're ready to make some changes. What do you see work well for folks who are ready to take risks and just looking for that shot in the arm of motivation, of inspiration, of courage? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, trying things before you make a leap is always a good option. Um, but you can, sometimes people can take that a little too far. <laughs> like for instance, um, you know, a lot of people I know who have a side hustle that they're, you know, they're working on and they're hoping to build into a full-time business. Um, it can just take a lot longer when you try to maintain, you try to do two things, right? But totally. if, but you can also take a different step in that where you, you sort of try before you buy, right? Is there a class you can take? Is there a mentor you can speak with? Um, is there, you know, just any way you can sort of try things out to get a sense for, is this really what I think it's going to be? Mm. Um, because sometimes I feel like there's that grass is greener approach where we we're so sure that a change is going to bring us all everything we desire. And then we arrive there and maybe we're faced with some of the same problems that we've been experiencing. So mm -hmm. I think it is important to, to do that deep work and to really figure out, you know, what are the motivating factors here and, um, and explore, you know, um, mm -hmm. be curious. That's my, that's my word of the year, curiosity. I think I anytime, it. anytime we can add curiosity, whether it's, um, in our jobs, you know, in our negotiation strategy, as it relates to our salaries, um, as it relates to examining other things that we want to do in life. I think curiosity is always an important skill to have in our pocket. Totally. Yeah. 
I think that's like the first barrier is giving yourself permission to be curious, as you've mentioned before, and permission to at least start exploring what would it take. And, you know, we all know the stats around women and money. They're not good. <laughs> Equal pay days coming up, the annual pseudo holiday where we celebrate how long into the next year women have had to work on average to take home what men did last year. You know, in a world that still doesn't pay women equally for equal work, how do you as a financial planner kind of approach that curiosity mindset or encourage risk-taking, knowing full well that women are more likely to be in poverty in retirement? You know, like what is your – how do you juxtapose that um, resiliency and that encouragement, which is so – such a huge part of your book – with the financial planner in you, you know, like how do you balance that desire to save and be conservative with take big risks and go for broke? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's a bit of what I, you know, I bring in my experience yeah. is that it, it's, it, you, you all, you have to be practical, right? You can't, um, you can't just like jump off a cliff without a parachute. Um, you, you do have to think, um, strategically, right? And so, I mean, I'm a planner, right? A financial planner. (laughs) I'm really big on plans. Plans don't mean that um, we're stuck with one path. Plans just mean we're prepared. And Mm. a plan can also mean that that we can shift gears and, and change paths much more easily and nimbly than someone who hadn't thought about that and had been very reactive. Mm. Um, and so I think that, you know, there's a, um, there, there's a need to look at it from that perspective of, you know, uh, a plan and a strategy and mm. to not be reactive to situations that you find yourself in. Though sometimes you may have to, you, mm-hmm. know, you, may, ha- you may have to be reactive and that, that can be a learning moment. That can be something that you take away and you, um, you have key learnings from that experience. Mm. Um, but, you know, there is an importance um, to having, to having, to being able to plan for contingencies. And right. I, what I mean by that is having a nest egg to, saved up in some form or fashion to mm-hmm. account for things that, that can happen. It's interesting. You know, for me, everything that your book chronicles kind of reflects where I've been <laughs> in my career <laughs> and in my financial life, which is like, at first, I had no no relationship with money other than the one I inherited from my parents, which was stress and anxiety and ignorance, quite frankly. And then, you know, once you've established some baseline control, a plan, a strategy, like you're saying, nothing crazy. We're not like I've never made a a boatload of money, but like, you know, just having your hands on, you know, wrapped around what's going out, what's coming in, you can make conscious choices to then get yourself into a position where you got a little bit of something to lose. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you've got a little bit of a nest egg. And then you can really start making those contingency plans and making those adjustments. And so it's just an interesting kind of correlation between financial literacy, which, you know, the powers that be don't want us to have, quite frankly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the ability to self-actualize, which just far too many people in this world still don't have the ability to do. Um, what does that look like in your life personally? Um, you know, being a planner, um, I, I think also due to my my experience as a child, I always wanted mm. to be prepared. And I think financial stability was 
important piece of that. And so, you know, at, at times for me personally, I have to remind myself to spend money. I have to remind mm-hmm. myself to indulge because it is hard for me sometimes to let go of that save at all cost and protect at all cost. Yeah. Um, and so, and it's something that I you have to be aware of in my work with private clients too, because I don't want to bring that baggage to, right. <laughs> you know, to yeah, the experience yeah. of, of working with someone. Right. And so, you know, my philosophy is to, to meet people where they are mm-hmm. and, you know, to, to be, to use the, the term of the, the year, curiosity, to be curious about what happened, you know, what was the experience like? And mm. I think that makes a big difference. Um, because we're all kind of the same, but we we do have different experiences that lead us to make different types of choices and actions. And totally, um, yeah. And nobody talks about them. I think For that's sure. part of the part of the weird thing. And so, working with a planner, working with a financial therapist, you know what I mean? Like there are so many, there's so many opportunities for self awareness to come from. Uh, transparency, a little bit of vulnerability, a little bit of conversation. Oh, yeah. Around all of this. That's really interesting. Well, congratulations on the business you've built, on the career pivots you've navigated, on your entire sort of trajectory of your life and what you've done with it to to lift as you climb. Um, It's really incredible work. Tell me where our listeners can learn more about you and explore what you have to offer for your clients. Yeah. So katynorth.com, C-A-D-Y-N-O-R-T-H.com is a place where it shows a collection of all my work, um, including links to be able to buy my book, The Resiliency Effect, uh, as well as links to my business, North Financial Advisors. Um, there's you know blogs, there's a, an array of information there that you can tune into, and I would love to be in touch. Awesome, Katie. Thank you so much for spending your time and sharing some of your wisdom with us. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Emily. It's been great. To find links to all of the resources that Katie and I mentioned in today's conversation, head to our corresponding blog post for today's podcast episode at bossedup.org slash episode 314. That's bossedup.org slash episode 314. And now it's time for this week's boss move of the week. Today, I want to give a very special shout out to a certain member of our Level Up cohort that ended actually in December. Here is something that Amy uh, posted about a month after graduating from Level Up, our six-month leadership accelerator for women leaders on the rise. She wrote, hey, Level Up friends, just thinking of you all as this afternoon I submitted a proposal for my boss to review in advance of my annual review, which is Monday morning. It's a proposal for me to be promoted from a manager to director level, add quite a bit of responsibility to my plate supporting the new CEO, and hire one full-time employee for me to oversee who would do a lot of what I do now. I thought so much about our level up learnings as I put it together. And Emily, I listened to podcast number 289 about three times. And episode 289, for those who don't know, is how to prove yourself for a promotion. Definitely worth checking out. I'll drop a link to it in today's show notes. Major congrats, Amy. Congrats on all of this progress and self-created opportunity. I think it's such a good reminder that if we don't actively push ourselves and our careers forward and propose our own promotions sometimes... They just won't happen any other way. So congratulations. I know you've got a long HR process ahead of you, but this is such a great demonstration of 
stepping up as the leader you already are, leveraging all the skills uh, of leadership and management that you've already mastered, but also just asking now for the promotion you're due, right? Asking to be recognized for the greater potential that you have to to offer to your organization. So congrats again, Amy. Uh, And thank you for checking in to share how it's going. We are so inspired by you and by all the progress that you're making. And for those who don't know, if you are interested in also accelerating your leadership and management skills, and you're wondering how on earth you're going to get to that next level, and you might be in need of a community of support, encouragement, learning, and growth, Level Up is that community for you. Enrollment is now open for our next Level Up cohort, which kicks off very soon. Just head to bossedup.org slash level up to get all the details. Uh, And you'll work with me and a variety of experts to hone the skills that you really need to succeed, especially as a woman uh, leader or an emerging leader on the rise. You never know who you're inspiring when you share your boss move in the Bossed Up Courage community on Facebook or by calling it into the podcast hotline. So give us a ring with your boss move of the week on our Bossed Up podcast hotline at 910-668-BOSS or 2677. You can always send me a voice memo at info at bossedup.org as well. I want to hear from you. What did you think about today's conversation with Katie North? What did you take away from Katie's experience around how trauma from an early age can inform your willingness to take risks and to rock the boat uh, in your career and life and finances later on? What What is your relationship with money like and how is it informed by uh, your ability to take risks or your inability to do so. I'd love to hear from you, especially if you're on the precipice of making transformation happen in your own life. It's not an easy process to go through, uh, but you don't have to go through it alone. So make sure to join us in the Bossed Up Courage community on Facebook. That's where the best conversations happen after each episode. And tag me on social media at Emily Aries or at Bossed Up Org. Until next time, let's keep bossing in pursuit of our purpose. And together, let's lift as we climb. 